With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word story time, 164. I'm Adam Collins. Jeff's only about 150 kilometers from me. He's in Melbourne. I'm down at my parents' place on the farm in Birragara a few days before Christmas. When you're listening to this, it will be a couple of days before 2024. Who knows? It might Mm -hmm. be morning five at the MCG, Australia, Pakistan. We might be on the cusp of a tie. Or mm-hmm. Australia might have won in two and a half days and we've all had two days doing something different. Hello, Jeff. We're in the time machine. We're in we're in the, the multiverse. We're in the everything, everywhere, all at once world. Anything could have happened. Um, I'm I'm guessing Hassan Ali will have been picked, <laughs> given that they're pretty much out of bowlers. They probably had to <laughs> pick him after we discussed him on Storytime yeah. last week. Uh, but whether that will have made a material difference to the likely result, I don't know. You don't know. Here we are. Maybe the whole thing's been washed out and abandoned. Um, I don't know. Maybe there was an asbestos problem at the MCG <laughs> and everybody got sent outside. I'm not suggesting that will happen, but we, we just we don't know. This is The future is not written as uh, as. Sarah Connor carved into the wooden tabletop. No fate. No fate. This is the thing that we can we can write an entire alternative history of the test mm-hmm. match that is about to start in four days' time. I say about to start. Still quite a journey between now and Boxing Day, and we could publish that. We could like that television show I keep watching at the moment um, mm. for all mankind, which theorises that the Russians landed on the moon first, and does an entire alternative history based on that premise and it's quite good you'd, quite, you'd probably enjoy that Jeff mm. we could do the whole thing you know maybe they've dug up the pitch maybe someone has broken in through the Hugh Trumbull cafe a protest <laughs> at Nathan Lyons receiving all this adulation rather than the great Trumbull and has seen fit to destroy the next test match mm-hmm. maybe 
maybe uh, maybe Assad Shafiq has made a comeback. Batted at six, uh, made 600, overtaken Ben Stokes' tally of <laughs> test runs at number six. You know, <laughs> the, the, the heart wants what the heart wants. We should be so lucky. Jeff, we should crack on more or less straight away because um, the whole idea of this is getting an episode in the can that we can roll out when we're too busy to record a story time and it being near Christmas, we're both busy boys, a lot mm-hmm. going on at the moment. So let's, let's, um, let's park any meaningful preamble and simply say that we're about to play a little bit of Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. You can really um, give it a bit bigger when you're sitting on the balcony, which I am on a, on a beautiful late afternoon in Melbourne, one of the consolation days, one of the ones where after it's been cold and rainy and shithouse, the sun comes out, you get the golden hour, it makes the, the new leaves on, on the trees glow with that heavenly green that seems to belong to some better plane of existence one that has been promised to us one where we may end up one day um, and 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 the, the sun is streaking across the grass there there's a little chirping of some birds in the trees and all is well with the world it's time to sing out nerd pledge all is not well with the world world's fucked we know that but um, at least in this very specific corner of the world things feel good nerd pledge is a game that we play with nice people who listen to this show and they decide that they are going to help fund it and they do that they send through through their contributions, not in normal denominations of currency, but very specific ones, because the number relates to cricket in some way, and we have to figure it out. Richard Jones, for instance, has sent through three pounds twenty-seven pence. So mm. the number is three twenty-seven. It comes with a clue; it doesn't have to, but it does in this case. He says this relates to a Hampshire player you mentioned in another nerd pledge answer a few months ago. You didn't know anything about him, so now is your chance to find out. P.S. My English teacher used to go out with him. <laughs> well, that's nuts. I like that extra bit of detail. I wrote this answer up on the flight today from Hobart to Melbourne before jumping in the car next to Winnie um, and just noting that, you know, as you describe your setting there, my setting here, when I walked in, my parents have gone full Griswolds inside the house because this will be the first Christmas Winnie can really sink her teeth into nearing right. four years of age. So we're, we're about to get on that roller coaster. Of mm. um, we, we had our photo with Father Christmas the other day and all feels well in the world at our end, so mm-hmm. purely on the basis of how excited she is. So, yes, Winnie has seen me writing this answer for Richard. Now, this is our second Richard Jones, Jeff, of course. We've got the other one, who I'm oh. pretty sure is a Worcestershire fan, isn't he? So the two, two Richard Joneses in our crew, which I suppose is to be mm-hmm. expected given they're both relatively common names. I am going to note for you, Jeff, that... Uh, that one um, Devon Conway made an unbeaten 327 on the way yep. to playing test cricket. He made that for Wellington against Canterbury in 2019. Uh, but that really has nothing to do with Hampshire. I just thought it was interesting that no. you know, Devon Conway, upon arriving in, in New Zealand, was making those big scores straight away. This took me a little while. Uh, unless you could link it somehow between Devon and Ham... Ham, Hampshire, I don't know. Um, yeah, th- this Devon, is, the, uh, this, Devon the, the sandwich it, meat... The luncheon meat. It, it luncheon doesn't translate. I've made I've made Devon jokes in the UK before, and they don't. They, obviously, they must call it something else. That that mm. weird fake pressed meat that gets like squashed into a into a roll. That's probably not meat per se, but it's all the leftover bits that get ground up into a paste and then mm. extruded in that shape. And and they feed it to you with tomato sauce and white bread in sandwiches <laughs> when you're a child in the 1980s or 90s. Disgusting stuff. Absolute abomination on the face of culinary enterprise. But uh, is that is it? For something, does that ring true for you as someone who's relocated? If you, I imagine there are, there's a lot of vocab you use that just doesn't fly in the UK. That's true. I mean, we, we definitely did the beef luncheon with sauce sandwiches as kids. My dad's pretty handy mm. 
on these matters, but for whatever reason, that was a staple when we were perhaps living a more simple existence in the outer southeast yep. suburbs in the 90s. They were in their 20s bringing up my brother and I. And, you know, a bit of beef luncheon, a bit of sauce was going to keep us happy. So I have mm-hmm. um, fond memories of that. And you still kind of go into town, don't you? The Don is good cylinders when you make your way into Melbourne uh, from the west, as I did on the train a couple yeah. of weeks ago. But no, we're not talking about Devon Conway and Ham. So with this one, you'll like this, Jeff. So this links back, I believe, in fact, I'm certain it links back to a game that you interviewed Jeremy Coney about in the back of the SCN commentary oh. box. So you recall, Jeff, that you were doing mm-hmm. a, a nerd pledge about, I can't remember what exactly, but it pertains to international Zealand. that yes. he played in uh, where he was run chasing as he did faultlessly. Um, Jeremy Coney was never dismissed in a winning run chase for New Zealand. You're quite right. So it was Adelaide 1983, the January of 1983. New Zealand was set 297, which was impossible in 1983. And they haul it down with Coney making an unbeaten 47 at the end. Hadley made quick runs as well. Um, But in the first innings of that match, England made 296 with a Gower century. Uh, Now guest Mm -hmm. and friend of the the pod, David Ivor Gower. Uh, But the other player who you referenced in your answer, this is where I didn't quite get the clue originally. I'm like, Hampshire player I knew nothing about. Like it... It's, it doesn't sound like the sort of words that would come out of my mouth. They came out of your mouth. The Hampshire player who, who you were unsure about the history of was a chap by the name of Trevor Jesty. Yes. He made 52 not out in 35 balls. Yeah, I'd never heard of him. I've, it was one of those ones where I was like, I literally had no concept that this player existed. Don't, and, you know, and, had, and nor did I. never heard the name. And nor did I. And I realised now I, I yeah, probably should have. Like He played mm-hmm. in a really interesting era of county cricket and a really strong side, but on account of the fact that his only England opportunities were in the summer of 82, 83 in Australia, he kind of fell off the radar as quickly as he came on the radar, mm. I suppose. So, yeah, this in a way is the perfect pledge, going full circle, linking back to something we've spoken about and gives us a chance to, to colour in some of the gaps. This was Jesty's seventh one-day international out of ten. They were all played in that tri-series between Australia, New Zealand and England in the summer of 82, 83. And he never did better than that 52 not out in 35 balls. He bowled in four matches, only took one wicket, and that was it. But, you know, there's some really interesting stuff here. This was when he was 35 years of age. So, you know, you kind of think of an all-rounder who gets one chance overseas. You might think they're 23 or something. This guy had a proper full-on career. Jets, as he was known, was born on the 2nd of June, 1948, in Hampshire, the invincible summer. And me being me, I was curious, what were the Australians doing on the 2nd of June, 1948? Well, what do you know? They were playing at Hampshire. So on the day he was born in Hampshire, down the road Mm. at Southampton, they were hosting Bradman's Invincibles, although not quite Bradman's Invincibles because he wasn't playing. Hassett was the the stand-in captain, as he was quite often in that tour. Bradman being the oldest member of the touring party and, and all the rest of it. And this was one of the best chances a side had of beating Australia, by the way, in 48, Hampshire. They made 195 the home side, but Australia are bowled out for 117. But then Hampshire are bowled out for 103 in their second innings. Keith Miller, five for 25, of course. And they're set 182 on the final afternoon and they haul it down for the loss of two wickets inside 45 overs, I think it was, with Bill Brown unbeaten 81 at the end. So, you know, very different time though, right? Like, you know, he plays international cricket in 1983, but he's born at a time of rations. You know, he's mm. born in the, in the immediate post-war era um, when life would have been so very, very different to other players in that team who would have been born, you know, as late as the, um, as late as the early 60s who had a very who would have had a very different upbringing mm. uh, in 60s and 70s England compared to what he knew in the in the late 40s, or I suppose in his case, by the time he was aware of his surrounds, the, the early 50s. 
He actually started playing first-class cricket as a teenager in 1966, so you know, 17 years before he makes his England bow, and has right. a fantastic county career. You know, he's capped in 1971, and he's really important in that famous county championship win that Hampshire have in 1973. He takes 35 wickets at 20, makes some runs. They win the John Player League, the one-day league in 1975, and again in 1978, and he's front of house in both of those sides. As a, He's not a tall guy, he's five foot ten, but he's a... Uh, a seeming all-rounder. He's more known for mm. his batting than his bowling, but in one-day cricket, he's quite important. Having a batter who can bowl his complement of overs. There's an expectation in this uh, 70s, late 70s era, when one-day cricket's starting to really pick up. There's more matches being played that he, he'd get a chance with England. But for whatever reason, through the what you'd call now the prime of his career, he was consistently overlooked for higher honours. That's until a monster 1982, where he makes 1645 runs at 58 with eight centuries in the championship and couples that or combines that rather with 31 wickets it's enough to make him one of the wisdom five in 1983 and and the aforementioned england trip uh, the winter of 82 83 so 10 one day is down there sadly no test matches that you remember it was one squad back in that era yep yeah but his average of 21 with the bat and, and one wicket with the ball meant that he didn't make the world cup squad of 1983 But just to go back to his domestic stuff for a sec here, what a great era at Hampshire. You know, in 1983, when he returned from that trip to Australia, in a uh, one-day game, he put on 269 unbeaten with Gordon Greenwich. You know, he made 166 of those, uh, our man Jesty. Yeah, Malcolm Marshall's there. You know, in, in 1976, he seconded in the bowling averages to Andy Roberts. But there's another player in that squad as well who we know quite well, Mark Nicholas. And the two of them were vying for the captaincy in 1984 for the summer of 85 and Nico got the job and Jesty wasn't best pleased about that so he left his club having played there from 1966 to 1985 he sought a new career in his by this stage late 30s at Surrey had three good years down at the Oval and when he was finished there uh, you know when he um, what, what did you do when you um, left the all-you-can-eat seafood restaurant? You went, um, you know, we went looking for another <laughs> we uh, went, all-you-can-eat all restaurant for the next three hours. And what, when you, what, what did you do when you couldn't find one after three hours? We went fishing. Does this sound like a man who had all-he-could-eat? Well, in this case, Jesty had not had all-he-could-eat as yet. Mm. So after Surrey, he went up the motorway and moved to Lancashire for a few more seasons. So he's in his 40s, right? Then they right. win back-to-back one-day trophies. Back-to-back, I haven't got the name of the, the sponsor's name that mm-hmm. it was in those years. I think it was the Ryobi Cup at that point. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Ryobi uh, Mercantile Mutual <laughs> McDonald's FIA Cup. Um, they won both in 1988 and 1989, back-to-back, just like Hawthorne, Lancashire, back-to-back in 88 and 89. And, um, and Jesty was um, the top scorer in the final right. in 1988. So I suppose he was the, he was the, the Gary Stevens. Sorry again? He's the, the Darren Stevens of his era. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah, that's right. So I don't know if he was best on ground. Maybe as the leading goal scorer in right. the 88 grand final. Yeah, there was a Dunstall Abbott Burton where they kicked seven, six, and five respectively in that grand final massacre of Melbourne. Anyway, I digress. So he's still playing full season in 1990 at 43 or something like that, or turning 43. And then he goes on to finish in 1991. I wonder how many first class cricketers spanned the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm pretty sure mm. Chris Taveray did. I've got a recollection of Taveray playing until 1993 when uh, when Triscothic made his debut and they cross over beautifully. I, in yeah. the back of my mind, I feel like Taveray goes back to 1969 or something like that. But oh, there can't be many. I mean, he's got a bigger span than Gold FM at this point. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> 
It's more double TFM, isn't it? Uh, 67. I <laughs> know. Oh, gold, gold originally was 60s, 70s and today. No, 60s, 70s and 80s or whatever it was. Yeah, it was. But then, um, you see, unfortunately, time moves on, Adam. This yeah. is, is the, the, there's a, a real tragedy to if you flip across a, a gold, a 104, whatever, gold FM thing, you at this point hear songs from about 2005 and it makes you feel very sad and very ancient because those are old songs now. Those yeah. are as long yeah. ago as the songs of the 70s were in the 1990s. Um, you flick so it over you and turn you it hear... on, you, you hear Dirty by Christina Aguilera. <laughs> you flick it over and you hear System of a Down, Chop Suey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Vintage. The vintage. You hear the, uh, the bass line of a Franz Ferdinand track um, and you you collapse weeping. You hear, <laughs> is this it by the strokes being played on Gold 104 probably these days. Who knows? I, I, well, uh, Smashing Pumpkins was getting around the other night. I mean, yeah, yeah things. The, these are these are moments in our lives that um, that slip through our fingers. At best, they should be on Double T, but on mm-hmm. Gold. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's... Um, that's a that's a modern tragedy right there of Melbourne Radio. So anyway, so his career runs from 1966 to uh, till 1991. Think about the yep. the degree to which the world changed. Like 66 is uh, Revolver, and 1991 is when the Soviet Union ends. Like there's a lot of 60, shit that's happened in the time. 66 he's a is is 66 is decimal currency in Australia, yeah. Yeah. and 91 is uh, this is the recession that Australia had to have. <laughs> <laughs> But 66 is, 66 might be the election. No, it was 69 when Paul Keating went into the parliament and 91 when his prime minister, taking over mm. as prime minister in December of 91, just around the time of the recession we had to have. Mm. Um, anyway, no more, no more political geekery for today, at least not in this answer. All up, Jesty scored 1,000 runs in a season on 10 occasions, average 35, no, sorry, average 33 and made 35 first-class hundreds, so a really important sort of career. Mm. On top of that, 585 wickets at 27. So a serious all-rounder. In list day cricket, seven centuries and a further 372 wickets. Uh, some of that domestic career was played in South Africa and New Zealand where he spent some winters. I'm not sure which era he was in South Africa. That might muddy the water mm. somewhat. But he, he played a little bit of domestic cricket down there, and which wasn't uncommon for England pros to, to travel to South Africa and, and New Zealand in that era. And um, a, you know, a lot of team success as well, uh, both at Hampshire in, in one era in the early to mid-70s, then Lancashire, just as they started winning all those trophies in the 90s, the, the nucleus of that, I suppose, was in the late 80s when he was getting about. He moved into umpiring. You'll like all of this, Jeff. After his cricketing career, he moved into umpiring pretty much straight away. And... Gave it a real go for a long time. I reckon based on the time he's retired, he's probably a contemporary of Bumble when Bumble's umpiring uh, mm. at first-class level before he becomes the coach of, of Lancashire. He never won men's test honours, but he was the fourth umpire in the 2006 test match at the Oval between England and Pakistan with Daryl Hare accused um, Pakistan of ball tampering and they never returned to the field. So he was an official in one of the more controversial test matches ever played. I went back and read the Andrew Miller Crick Info text commentary of that a few years ago. And it, text commentary really captures the drama of a situation when it's like an unfolding story. And um, mm. Miller did a good job of summing up just how dramatic that all was when Pakistan forfeited a test match and 
our man Jesse here was the, the fourth umpire. We should be so lucky, Jeff, to get a game end like that um, in the time we're covering cricket. Anyway, he did three one-dayers. He did a bunch of women's internationals, all up 189 first-class matches umpired, 273 list day and 100 T20s just for good measure. And in keeping with that sort of controversial bent, he did umpire in the ICL in 2007 when it started. So I'm not sure if he got threatened with a ban, but he did get back, and you'll like how this comes full circle as well. He did get back to umpiring county cricket. Indeed, he cracked on until 2013. So he retired from that when he was 65. And his final game, appropriately enough, was Hampshire and Essex, so his his old club playing against Essex. And there's some there's a nice bit to this too because his first game, uh, his first game uh, in professional ranks back in 1966 was also against Essex. Now on this front, I said there was a link to Bradman's Invincibles because he was born on the day that they were playing Hampshire in 1948. There's a piece on Crick Info by Bill Riquier the day that Jesty retired from first class umpiring called Six Degrees of Separation. Not sure how he got this commission. Well played him. But it refers to the fact that Trevor Bailey's final game as captain of Essex was Jesty's first game and they played against each other. And if you want to go back in time, Trevor Bailey had been around, you know, since the 50s and, and so on. But he'd, his first major game of cricket was in 1946, sorry, make that 1948, sorry, at South End, which was the game where Bradman's Invincibles made their 721 in a day. So Bailey's career spanned that day in 48, the year Jesty was born, and goes all the way up to when he makes his first class debut on the same field as him in, uh, huh. in 1966. And then from there, he went on to link Bailey to, I think, uh, someone in between to Phil, oh, to Bradman, sorry, because he, because uh, Bradman's Invincibles, to Phil Mead, who we've talked about many times as the most runs ever in county cricket, who played with Rhodes, who played with Grace, and he gets everyone back to Grace between Bradman and Grace, and Jesse slots in in the middle there, which is quite a nice way of um, doing that linking <laughs> in the chain. I still don't quite know what the 327 is, by the way. It's not his one day cap, that's 68. Took 372 list day wickets, 340 games for Hampshire, the 327. And the best I can come up with was that that was the number of runs he made in list day cricket in 1976. I don't think it's that, so I'm going to have to have a, a, an extra swing in the in the um, confirmations here for Richard Jones. But I'm pretty sure for all of that, Trevor Jesty, um, that's his story in cricket and a, and a mighty one it was for Hampshire. Sometimes we know the answer without necessarily knowing the number, which might be yeah. the case on my next one. I like that, that he went into umpiring after playing till about 48. Mm, he was like, mm. yep, haven't had enough yet. Maybe James Anderson will go into umpiring <laughs> once, he, once he finally wraps up. Um, can't get away from it. The next number is from Andrew Pellicati, who was at the live oh. show in Hello, Melbourne Andrew. the other night. It is $1.50 and it comes with a clue. Okay. I was just thinking about our Discord channel before, which Andrew is very active on, when I had a, a big M uh, when driving from the airport to here, had my flavoured milk. <laughs> Didn't take a photo. Should have taken a photo for our sub chat there about flavoured milk um, that we're meant to be posting every time, but I did forget. The clue from Andrew is the 1997, and by the way, Andrew loves the milk because he follows the Canberra Raiders who are sponsored by milk. The 1997 Aussies fill their boots and party with the milk. I didn't even read the clue. More milk. The, the links Up. this week, the links on this story time. This feels good energy early on. Up the milk. Um, yes. Up the milk. 
Yes. Now, some some people, you were going off into Australian rules football divergences before. Some people, including Andrew, complain that we don't talk about rugby league on the show. That's because we don't <laughs> know anything about rugby league. But in this case, I'm going to because, Adam, cricket is not the only sport that had a high-level administrative split. Mm. Um, anyone who knows league knows about the Super League wars in the 1990s. Didn't involve Kerry Packard. Did involve Rupert Murdoch, the two big, rich guns of that era of time, I suppose. I, re- I reckon comparatively, Kerry Packer doesn't look quite so bad in retrospect, given that Rupert Murdoch has lived forever and just got more and more evil. Like, at least Kerry Packer clocked out at a reasonable age, instead of trying to live to 130 and continue running the world <laughs> until that point. Um, and, you know, you can you can sort of see what Kerry Packer was about at certain times. Um, he's... Mm, the, the comparative graph is a bit more flattering to Packer than it might have been at the time. I reckon that changed as well. I reckon if you go back 25 years, Jeff, like Murdoch's brand was in better nick than Packer's. Mm. But yeah, posthumously, you're right, Packer died in his late 60s. Murdoch will live to his 120. I know he's given up the um, the executive chairmanship of News Corp, but we, we all know he's still running the show. Um, oh, yeah. In that sort of very succession sort of style. And it, there is a storyline in succession about extending people's lives, isn't there, and whether they have the technology to do that. Um, I'm sure Murdoch will be cryogenically frozen at some stage. Doesn't he have, I'm pretty sure he has some title now, like Chairman Emeritus or Chairman some absolute Emeritus. wank like that, just an industrial vat full of wank. Well, I mean, Lachlan, Lachlan's, Lachlan's not, not putting him out on the moon, is he? I think that's, that's, that, that, that was widely touted as the reason why he didn't get this gig a long, long time ago, right? He was given mm. the chance to run Channel 10 for a time and had Queensland newspapers for a time as well. And the sense was that had he been up to it earlier, he would have had it by now. Um, mm. He's kind of last man standing with the rest of the family distancing themselves from the old man. So I'm sure Rupert, till the day he dies, he'll be deciding the major things at that company mm. for worse, not better. Yeah, who should be the Prime Minister of certain nations and so yeah. on. Anyway, Super League. Super League is when he tries to take over Rugby League. They have a split with, so there's the ARL, which is the Australian Rugby League, which is kind of old school and it is quite like mm. the cricket thing. He's, he wants to professionalise it and make a bunch of money out of it. They've got the Super League, which is the British League, although at the time that we're talking about, they referred to it as the European League, Adam, because they had one team from France. So it's very <laughs> euphemistic. Basically, all the teams are from Yorkshire or Lancashire, but they have Paris Saint-Germain, uh, nice. who most people know as a, as a round ball football team, yeah. did have a rugby league team. So they had okay. one continental, one not hard and fast uh, rugby league team that came out of France, they folded by 1998. But at the time, it was like this was the European Championship uh, of rugby league. And we are looking at 1997 when Paris Saint-Germain is is a, a going entity at that point. So Murdoch sets up the Super League in Australia where he splits it off. He lures some of the uh, ARL teams across. He makes some new teams. And it lasts for one season, and then after that, they broker a peace deal with the ARL, and they form the NRL, the National Rugby League, as it is today, with its you know billion plus dollar broadcast deals and all the rest of it. Um, it's a big, big sporting entity, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland. So, but while Murdoch's trying to do the Super League thing, every team across both of the Super Leagues, the one in Europe in inverted commas, and the one in Australia, so twenty-two teams get involved in this this. Uh, tournament that they call the Super League World Club Championship where they they all they don't all play each other but they all play a handful of games I'm just thinking, and then go I'm just thinking like they're all court. in the same country or the same city NF, NRL Island uh, style and can't NRL Island yeah. yep first thing I think yep this is 
this is exactly where we're going. <laughs> um, so 22 teams. So a bunch of the England teams come out to Australia and play some games. And then some of the Australian teams, I don't know if they all do it at once or if they're staggered, but they have to go to England to play. So they're, they're mostly playing six games. So they have to go there and play three matches. And a bunch of them go at, at a similar time, I believe. But they've got to, they, they're cooking the books for this because they need to get eight teams into quarterfinals. But in order to make it look like it's spread across the two leagues, they want four Australian teams and four English slash European teams, right? So they insist on that happening, even though the English slash European teams are getting absolutely flogged by every Australian side. So the Australian teams, mostly the ones that are now the NRL teams, plus the, the Auckland Warriors as they were at the time, they dominate. So the Broncos, Brisbane, the Warriors, Cronulla Sharks, the Panthers from Penrith, they're all 6-0. and oh. Like they've all just won every game. Um, and there's this other team Up called the, the Hunter Mariners. <laughs> uh, I think the Mariners Andy reinvented... Andy Mack has re himself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the Mariners were invented for Super League. I'm not 100% on that, but don't yell at me just because I don't know the history of rugby league <laughs> off the top of my head. But the Mariners are also 6-0. and oh, So that's five teams that haven't lost a game, but only four of them can make it to the quarters because four European teams have to get in. So Penrith misses out. Canberra win five games, but they miss out as well. So making the finals from Europe, um, notionally, are Wigan, who won two games out of six, the London Broncos, who won one game out of six. <laughs> Paris Saint-Germain, who won one game out of four. I don't know why they didn't have to play six, but they didn't. And a team called the Bradford Bulls, who didn't win a fucking game. <laughs> they were 0-6, and, and they still made the quarterfinals. <laughs> what a sport. The, <laughs> what a sport, rugby league. Of the Super League <laughs> World Club Championship. Well, this is all Murdoch just trying to make up something prestigious, right? Mm. So, I mean, God knows what the... Uh, I don't know where the, what the London Broncos were on about, but at least they managed to win one game. But nonetheless, the Bradford Bulls, none and six, they're in there. I don't know how, because there are other teams that did win a game and didn't qualify, so I, I couldn't figure this out in the time I had available. Anyway, Andrews uh, Canberra Raiders, they start beautifully at home. They win a game 70-6. to six. They win 66 to 20 and they win 56 to 22 so they put 192 points on the board in the first three games they've played and then they go to London and they're probably drunk or hung over or both and they lose to the London Broncos and that's it so they've, so they've got off the plane they've lost this game and they know that's it they know they've got to play two more games they know they've got two more weeks over there oh and dear. they know they can't qualify for the finals oh dear right? that's the longest Mad Monday when you consider yeah. oh gee what you and said they, before they, they do like doing things together I mean there's some pretty ordinary human beings doing the rounds in rugby league at the best of times backdate that to 1997 pre-social yeah. media yep. pre- camera phones yep. and for a predilection yep. for all sorts that would have been fucking horrible hate crime stuff well so and and it's not it's not the trophy they're interested in anyway so they they do what you assume they will do they get rugby league drunk um, <laughs> they have they have two weeks to fill uh, so there's a book by Steve Mascord about the Super League War that has a captain on this so some of these these quotes are coming from that he quotes Simon Wolford who was the Raiders hooker <laughs> and became the captain later and, it, and 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 Wolford's talking about Mel Meninga who was the coach <laughs> of the uh, Raiders at the time okay Mel was the coach and he liked to drink so we pretty much got straight off the plane and got on the beers for the next two or three days. Right. This, 
This is before their first match. Then they play. So, so before their first game, they're out in Covent Garden. Um, there are reports of at least one player surfing on the back of a cab, like climbing up onto a black cab and riding it through Covent Garden. Um, several of the players. I've got the get- reference point of uh, Joey John's skateboarding because on the other side of it, the ARL, Newcastle famously win in '97, yep. and like, like Daniel Johns rocks up with the with the Johns brothers the next morning on like, you know. Today Show or Sunrise or something. But Joey on the skateboard down the street mm. having had a skinful. I mean, you know, this is akin to that, but on top of a cab. <laughs> yep. So riding the cab, there's an impromptu police lineup because I don't know how this happens, but somebody gets in a fight with a taxi driver. Not sure. Can't, can't put two and two together there. But, uh, <laughs> but so the cops are just lining up Canberra Raiders players in Covent Garden to be like, is this the guy? Is this the guy? <laughs> Um, yeah, this is this is before they've even played their first match and lost it. Anyway, so then they go from London up north where they play Halifax and someone else and the 1997 Ashes are on mm. and the Headingley Test is on. You know, the test where mm. Dizzy takes his seven for in the first innings, Matthew Elliott makes 199, Ponting makes 100, Australia make a squillion and on the last day, Dizzy gets two more, not three, doesn't get a 10-wicket match despite his seven for Paul Rifle takes five, Australia win by an innings and a bunch of the Canberra players are there and this is where it really rugby leagues it up. Um, they storm the field. Well, it's not when, rugby league enough. Getting on the top no. for three days upon arrival, losing to the only side that hadn't won a game in the entire yep. tournament. Uh, you know, getting oh, not the only side. There were a bunch of shit. Well, sorry, yeah, one of, the only ones that made the, the quarters or whatever it was, as yep. you were saying before. But getting having a police line up and a punch on with a cabbie in Covent mm-hmm. Garden. Um, yep. well, they haven't got rugby league drunk as yet. Continue. No, so so obviously they have to dress in drag to go to the test match. That's just um, to it, you know. That's just de rigueur for 1997 for a bunch of men to really express themselves. So they're they're all kitted up and they storm the field when uh, the final wicket is taken, and then pretty much just end up straight in the Australian team rooms uh, where they're obviously made to sing True Blue. Um, a player named Jason Death. Is, that is genuinely a guy's name. He's the only one. He gets sent home because he climbs on a table, I think, and performs a move known as the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> is this in the Aussie dressing room? Is that I, think, I think it might be publicly visible. I couldn't oh, quite right. get a beat on where it was, so it might have been at the window. Um, I've just anyway. realised that we've made a big blue here, Jeff, with not yep. getting Nick Turvion to uh, do special comments on this story. This, is, this could not yeah. be more... Uh, one of our uh, most dedicated listeners, I suppose you'd call him, in his yeah. wheelhouse, the 1997 rugby league players gone wild in England. But anyway, we've missed that boat now. Well, the, the helicopter is a move where I'm, I'm going to assume it, it's sort. I think it came up on puppetry of the penis it later, did, where yeah. you, you drop yeah. the strides and then uh, establish a circular motion. <laughs> um, not not in a. I mean, you know, an actual helicopter is is horizontal, the rotor, whereas this is more of a vertical rotor. It's more like, what's the movie, Roy? Roy Roy Scheider, who's in, in Jaws, stars in a movie where he's a helicopter pilot that might be called Cobra or something like that, and he does a sweet trick where he has to like do a loop in a helicopter, which is impossible in terms of physics because you can't turn them upside down. But anyway, the, the, it's that style. It's it's a vertical rotor, not a. It's also a rotor. trick. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So that gets Jason Death sent home. Um, <laughs> 
to, I don't know, hang out with Philip Nitschke or whatever he was doing. And uh, there's there's an incident where a bunch of signed bats, uh, there the are players trying to steal those. Um, Michael Kasperich loses his baggy green that night, goes missing, doesn't never comes back. Um, there's a player called Luke Davico who's making a point of just grossing out Shane Warne because Luke Davico has his mouth smashed open. He's got this busted lip and he keeps um, taking Warney's cigarette and then smoking it and then handing it back to him with like blood all over the filter and stuff. <laughs> And Shane Warne's not up for that. He's like, mate, you keep it. That's yours now. Um, uh, there's a guy called Jason Croker with a fake tooth who keep, who's had his tooth knocked out, so he keeps pulling his tooth out and handing it to people. And then Mel Meninga, who's the coach, remember, of this, this outfit. Um, this is one of the quotes. So we had this competition where Mel had to run with a can of beer in his hand and he had to score a try at the other end of the dressing room. A couple of the cricketers, it might have been the War Brothers and Michael Bevan, Michael Slater or someone, I remember a couple of them going in to tackle Mel and he just drops the hip and shoulder and bang, they've all gone flying and hit their heads and Mel slammed the can down and goes, try. Um, so that's <laughs> that's good stuff that's going on there. Leadership. The quote continues, they reckon Steve Waugh had a crook shoulder for months after that and I think Jason Croker, he picked up Michael Bevan and threw him through the roof. <laughs> so, we can ask Bevan so about we this, can ask about Let's this. not miss the segue here. I Live know. show the 7th of January. Come and see Michael Bevan. We'll ask yep. him about the day the Canberra Raiders came to town. 97 yeah, Ashes. Did Jason Croker throw you through a ceiling or a roof um, at, after the Headingley <laughs> test? And, and, and it finishes up with um, Big Jim Wilson, who oh, uh, many people would know for, for years as the newsreader on Channel 7, who does radio stuff now. Um, so David Coe, is one of the players I mentioned earlier, has brought a video camera. And he says, uh, I vividly remember picking up the video camera the next day in the hallway, and it was in bits and pieces, but we salvaged the video and we've got some great footage. So well, part of which includes... The this. He says, a bunch of players, we kept going up to Jim Wilson, going, Jim, give us a report of the Ashes. You can imagine this happening, you know. Mm. Uh, so Jim starts off with, what a fantastic day in the Ashes. We shoved it up England's ass." Um, <laughs> and, and, and then you can see Simon Wolford coming from behind him and he just cuts him in half, tackles him, and they're rolling around everywhere and the glass of red flies all over the place. Jim and Simon are rolling around on the floor and Jim's going, where's my red wine? Give me another red wine. Oh. If only in the 2019 Ashes when Tony Jones was performing that role as a non-rights yep. holder news hound. No, that's not true. TJ was there with nine who had the rights. But nevertheless, the, the news reporter as opposed to the commentary team. Because they didn't have their, their own commentators over there. That's they? it. That so I, I just wish that when Marcus Harris and mm. Matthew Wade, I think I'm right in saying, mm-hmm. accosted Jones when doing a cross from the ground at Old Trafford after they retain the ashes had they taken him out mid-cross and started punching yes. on with him with a bottle of red that would have added to the the mystique of the occasion but no I can I can imagine that my my great memory of Jim Wilson when I was a kid was that every time the Good Friday appeal was on he would do a rendition of the Harker in the tally room you know and if you read out my pledge I'll double it kind of energy from that era when um when there was four tv stations and you watch what you were given literally as we're having this conversation I'm, I'm sitting on the balcony which faces the street and mm. uh, a couple of dudes maybe about 21 went running by one of them in a shopping trolley and the other one pushing it as fast as he could down the hill so you know the energy is is, is here right now so that's that's when the milk partied with the Australian team and the reason that it's 150 I think is that the Canberra Raiders in that competition went five and one they went one and five one loss five wins so I'm going to put that as my one five for the one five zero nice Um, and and that is Andrew Pellicati's number even if it's not the number that's definitely the story
Fantastic, Jeff or Andrew. And, and, uh, great to have um, the, that story in the show. And as I mentioned before, great timing. Uh, the Michael Bevan live show, the comedy mm-hmm. store in uh, Sydney, which is right near the SCG. Night five of the Pakistan-Australia test match. Hopefully it goes five days. Even if it doesn't, that won't stop Jeff and me. We'll be on stage with Bevo doing our thing and all the other bits and pieces from Melbourne, they'll be part of it as well for those who weren't there for that. But might have heard on the grapevine, it was quite a fun segment one. You get the tickets from Linktree, that's in the show notes. Could not be more straightforward. Uh, it would be great to pack out that venue for our first ever Sydney live show with a with a real icon, the maestro of the 90s one day, uh, Michael Bevan, made in heaven. Great response to that announcement, Jeff. If you want to send us a nerd pledge, very easy to do. Patreon.com slash the final word. And as we go into the break, we note that this is the last year, Adam, the final year that Seabus will be 39 because Seabus will be 40 next year. That's true. I, I guess this will go out on the 30th, so they'll have one more day of being a 39-year-old. I wonder how mm-hmm. I'll grapple with that on the 14th of August next year. Um, mm. I'll think about Jason Dunstall, whose birthday is the 14th of August, probably the day before my birthday. And I will reflect on the fact that he will be turning... If I'm turning 40, that means he's turning 60. That much I can tell you for nothing. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's a significant birthday, cbussuper.com.au, putting their members' interests first. We've spoken about how that has enabled them to keep their fees where they are because it's only about investing in returns for members, which in turn leads to a dignified retirement. We've spoken a lot about them and we'll continue to do so throughout the course of 2024, their huge birthday bash and their outstanding 889 percent average return on their my super account so their default account past performance not a reliable indicator of future performance jeff but that's a that's a pretty impressive set of numbers on a show that primarily is about organizing numbers this being story time it is all about the numbers and yes cbus have been a big supporter of ours and they're a big supporter of close to a million australians who have their account their retirement account with um, cbus super so why not why not nudge that up? It's over 900,000 at the moment. You could jump in there and help push them up towards seven figures and you know, maybe they can do the same for you. Why not? Okay, Jeff, time for our break. On the other side of it, a really interesting transnational thing, which I can't describe any better than that. <laughs> All right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. 
At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. Final word, story time, 164. Yes, that's right. We've done this 164 times where Jeff and I have sat down together and told the stories of cricket mm. past. The first time that Jeff and I have recorded an episode of this for a little while. Uh, the last time it was one of these, it was Brat and Daniel hosting mm. in our absence. We didn't get one out last so week. So we've done we, it. We've only done 163 times, actually. That's true. And to be fair, the, by the time this goes out, everyone would have heard 163, which we did record. But the point stands mm. that we are now very much back in the saddle as we power on into 2024. And our third number today is one that I'll be dealing with from Peter Roberts. It's 78 Swedish kroner. It comes with uh, an interesting clue. Peter says this because because we, I think his answers previously have generally involved uh, that northern part, mm. the, the icy lands of the north of Europe. He says, I've updated with a new pledge of 78 for a wicketkeeper goalkeeper with an unusual transnational backstory. No Scandinavia link. His combination of countries is unusual enough as it is. Really appreciate having so many cheerful podcasts at the gloomiest time of year over this way. Yeah, there is a distinct lack of daylight up in that part of the world at this time of year. So um, we're glad if we can open a, a ray of sunshine. And we've done a lot of wicketkeeper, goalkeeper stuff, Adam. Yeah. We talked about Rebecca Rolls, who did both those jobs mm-hmm. for New Zealand, so for the women's teams. We had the name escapes me at the moment, but the player who was doing it for Bahamas, was it, relatively recently, mm-hmm. who was doubling up with both sets of gloves. And we've had a few others in our period of time as well. We've, we had uh, we had Gregor, now his last name's escaped me as well, who was doing it for Scotland in the early 1900s. My mind's saying Gregor Samsa, but that's the guy from The Metamorphosis who turns into a cockroach. So yeah. that, that is not the same thing. Gregor McGregor. Gregor McGregor, go. I was going to say. That's why that's, I forgot, because he only had one name. Yeah, yeah, like um, Donald McDonald and Gregor McGregor. Unless you go out for a pint. Well, I can't do that because Gregor McGregor's dead. But um, yes. I suppose um, Donald McDonald will one day perish as well. And they in, can um, meet on the other side. In heaven, they can talk I'll about I'll meet you on God's golden shore. Uh, well, as we move into this, I just want to say this is a belter of a pledge. And this is where our nerd pledge CSI crew come into their own. When I kind of mentioned this to a few of them in our little WhatsApp group, they jumped at the chance to decode this mm-hmm. clue. I mentioned Sean um, given on Storytime 163. I didn't mention Matt Main. He was offended by that, but Matt's part of it. Glenn Finkeld, Brats Underation occasionally. They do good work with us in collaboration with us. Pat Rogers. Pat Rogers. Can't forget the great Pat Rogers. Mm-hmm. I want to interview Pat Rogers about his book soon, Jeff. That's my next book club. Anyway, mm-hmm. Pat doesn't know that, but hi, Pat, if you're listening. He will be. Pat listens. Pat listens, I know that. But yes, uh, where they where we got to was a very nice place indeed. A chap uh, by the name of Spiros Echinopoulos. Spiros Echinopoulos. Right. I'll get quicker as we go. Spiros Echinopoulos. Sure. All right. Uh, he, he was born in 1959, and he went on to have one of these big goalkeeping careers that you referred mm. to before. Greek? It, it, just on the name, so... You know, if we're if we're doing our um, if we're, our etymology, the polis being the people or the city, you know, yep. metropolis kind of thing. But, but econ e c o n, I mean, just makes me think economy. So surely his name just means business district, right? Yeah, central business district. That's good. That's <laughs> Spiros good. CBD. 
Yeah, and he didn't like you know as as um as Peter says, it's not like he grew up in Sweden. If it was a Sweden Greece link, I would have really enjoyed that. But it's not. I did have. I did spend a Christmas in Sweden many years ago, did 2011, you? and I remember okay. getting pretty pissed on Christmas Day, as is the custom mm. in that part of the world. They really they don't fuck around in um mm. in, in in Scandinavia around Christmas. And no, um, Ed Cowan was making his test debut on Boxing Day against India at the MCG, and I called uh, dear friend of the show Matt Clemo, went pissed and said, "Clemo, mate, I've never not seen an Australian on debut reach three figures." This is when Cowan's on about 50. I said, if he gets to 95, you are to call me. I'm leaving my phone on. You ring me. And the call never came because, of course, he was out for 70-something caught down the leg side. But, yeah, 72 um, maybe? Yeah, 70, 70, 70-ish. But, yeah, anyway, mm. I remember that Christmas fondly for um, okay. the lack of, the lack of uh, sunlight and, and the other the quirks being that far. Lack of sufficient food uh, to offset everything. Did you throw Michael Bevan through a roof at any stage? No, that, that Christmas sadly time? not. Yeah. Sadly not. Mm. We... Um, <laughs> I uh, wonder whether he's been to Sweden before. He would have done well there. Right, so back to Spiros. Born in 1959, big goalkeeping career. Greek, mm-hmm. the name gives that away, right? Um, Did guess that, yeah. I'm just going to skip from 1959 to 1978, a year that I'll come back to later in a roundabout okay. kind of way. Well, he made his debut uh, for AEK Athens, big football club there, in 1977 mm-hmm. as a teenager because there was a player strike and they were desperate and they called him up from the juniors and he made his debut and he played through 78 and they won yeah. the league. So, you know, he played his part in winning the competition in 1978. And in the absence of anything deeper into this that sufficiently satisfies the number from Peter, I'm going to guess that that's why we're going to be dealing with 78 here because in his first proper mm-hmm. season of professional football, Spiros won the comp with AEK. Athens. It's probably something else, but that's good enough to continue telling the story. Sure. He went on to play there for 19 years. One club, proper one club hero. So rare, right? Professional football. Mm. Yeah, they they jump around often. They they. It's it's very uncommon to play for one club all the way through. But he did. He wasn't always in the starting team either. He was so bloody loyal. Like he was the. Greek goalkeeper for 12 matches between 1984 and 1989. His debut was an away game in East Germany in 1984. Like, there's some, there's some mm. romance to that in retrospect. I mean, I'm sure his hotel room was being bugged and the Stasi were, you know, monitoring their every move. But still, you know, it's something quirky about having played a, a game of international sport in a country that by definition does not exist anymore. But even through all of that, they're so strong, AEK, Athens, in their goalkeeping ranks that he's not always in the team. But he does play a huge role in 1988-89, the years we were talking about earlier with Jesty, where he won those back-to-back pennants uh, with Lancashire in the one-day comp. Well, in the 88-89 football season, AEK win the comp for the first time in 11 years from that first season that he played in, in 77-78. Uh, and Spiros was central to that. He was the main goalkeeper throughout the course mm. of that season. Spiros Ekonopoulos just wanted to say that again. Very satisfying name to say Nate, once you get the hang of things. Um, he kept knocking about in that squad until 1996 when he finished up as a 37-year-old. But how does all of this link back to wicket-keeping? I can hear you ask down the uh, down the riverside screen, Jeff. Well, yep. you know how I said I'm going to start the story at 1978? What if mm. we don't start it? What if we go all the way back? Spiros, hero of AEK, all-timer at that club, actually began his life in Kiama in Australia until he was 11 years of age. Huh. He grew up in Australia, never played football at all. He was a wicketkeeper. And I listened to I listened to a part of a podcast that he did and, and, and read an article right up of it as well when, when doing the research for this answer. He said that because of his upbringing, he just played cricket. Oh, no, nah, you know, he was an Australian kid. 
You didn't really think mm. about playing football or soccer as it would have been known, you know, when, and how little, sure. I suppose, how little football there was. I didn't actually go to check. Where is Kiama, Jeff? Kiama. Kiama, isn't it? Kiama. Kiama. I'm, I'm looking it up right now because I was okay. curious. Why, why are you I'd looking it up? Of, I feel like I it's New South Wales. It, it is in New South Wales, but I've, I can't remember which bit. Like, I, I kind South, of, South it's Coast familiar like enough. Bega, sh- you know, Bega kind of energy to it, possibly. While well, you're doing that and you've got your phone out at the moment, I'll, I'll tell you the next bit of this. Yeah, so, South Coast. South yep. Coast, there we go. So, Kiama. It's, I said, it's, called it Kiama before. Kiama, of course. I can already hear Just people. down the road from Jamboree, uh, near, near Shell Harbour. Uh, okay. So, down from, down from Port Kembler a ways. Okay, okay. We've got some context now. And, um, and north of Seven Mile Beach. Okay, so north of 90 Mile Beach as well in that case. Fair way, fair way north of that. Presumably, Always love yeah. that we call it a beach, yeah. 90 Mile Beach. It's a much beach. bigger beach. Very Australian. When it's not. Um, is it 90 miles? I don't know. Does it go, go to, to 90 miles? That's a, that's a long way. It's a yeah. long way. When you look I mean, at it on the map, it is dead straight for 90 Mile and it does look like beach mm. when you... This isn't um, the final word geography podcast, clearly, because neither of us would do very well on that. But if, you, if you're calling a beach Seven Mile Beach, then you're thinking that Seven is notable enough to name a beach after it. Which yeah. means ninety is a lot further along than seven. You know, that's yeah. is, was it just a huge act of one-upmanship? Oh, nice beach you got there. How long is it? Seven miles. Oh, interesting. Mm. Got a new name for this place. Very um. Well, I'm I'm tipping these beaches would have been names before Federation. Maybe right. George Coulthard had a hand in this. Okay, so well, Seven Mile Beach. Seven I mile fucking fought off a shark in the water in Shark Island. I'll <laughs> I'll give you the ninety mile beach in Victoria. Where I'm from. Anyway, it's uh, it's 130 kilometres south of Sydney. There you go. That's Kayama. Okay. That'll do. That'll do. So he's a wicketkeeper, right? Mm-hmm. And when he rocks up in Greece to go to school and he's an 11-year-old, I presume, I assume rather, the family just moved back to their home country. They yeah. said, what do you do? What, what's your sport? He goes, oh, I can catch the ball really well. Can't kick it, but I can catch it. They go, all right, yeah. well, you're the goalkeeper. They probably didn't speak with an Australian huh. accent to him. Yeah. Um, he would have spoken with an Australian accent. Have done. He, there, there was so, a lot of Greek-Australian crossover by that point. So you sort of but not in really, Greece. Not, not in no, Greece, but, there I wouldn't mean, have been. But back and forth, because ramping up from the late 40s, you have a lot of sure. Greeks who yeah. come over here and are then born here and so on and then shuffle back, and there's there's that Athens-Melbourne yeah. connection. So, you know, there might have been... There, there probably would have been some uh, some people in Greece who'd spent a fair bit of time over here as True. well. True. I was reading a little bit about that wave of migration the other day, actually, in reference mm. to the anniversary of Harold Holt's death. I just, you know, as I do, I got kind of fixated on this for a couple of hours and read about the work he did as immigration minister to Menzies in uh, in the post-war era and how actually how quite important he was in mm. opening minds to the idea that we actually needed to proceed with this migration program yeah. to help fill the country. How the world has changed to think that a right. conservative government were advancing this cause and, you know, now the, the position mm. of most conservatives around the world is to, you know, Lock the door. What was Trump saying last week? Yeah. Anyway. Poisoning anyway. the blood of our country. Poisoning yeah. the blood of our country. It, um, sounds, I mean, you know how sometimes it sounds you, can familiar. Trouble, <laughs> you can get in trouble for comparing familiar. things to a, a certain regime from the, um, yep. from the 30s in, in a certain part of Europe. Um, having, that does, done, having done a lot of reading of propaganda from that era um, in my life, it, it really just rings a lot of similar bells, that's all. Um, so moving from Harold Holt back to uh, back to Spiros. So yeah, it's, the simple story is this: he became the goalkeeper because he was the wicketkeeper in Australia, which he fully credits to Lovely. his professional footballing career. 
that being an Aussie cricket fan helped him become a Greek goalkeeper, purely down to the fact that he loved catching the ball and he just translated those skills over. And he also said he watched a bit of football on TV in Australia as a kid, so he loved Manchester United. Presumably it was the early days of SBS, although I'm not even sure SBS was around, because this would have been the 60s, right? He's born in 59. Yeah, Whitlam introduces SBS. Whitlam does, right. Yeah, of course he does. Of course he does. So that's 72. So we're pre-SBS, so I'm not sure what network was carrying English football, but Mm. he caught some of that on on telly in the early days of TV in Australia. Um, He was known as the Aussie kid, as you'd expect over there, and he learned everything on the fly at school. By 17, as we discussed already, he's he's scouted by AEK, and then we've yeah, already detailed that career. Why 78? Maybe that. Maybe that first strike-breaking season of 77, 78, mm-hmm. where they were successful. There's another wicket-keeping link, though, Jeff. This is a bit cheeky, but we'll do it anyway. A man by the same name, exactly the same name, Spiro Ekonopoulos. When you start Googling Spiro Ekonopoulos, as our, as our Nerd Pledge CSI um, crew were doing when helping me with some of the parts of this answer, they dug up a feature written by a man of that name a few years ago, in his capacity as the programming director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Looking at Mm -hmm. the pick, I don't think Spiros from that is old enough to have been born in 1959. However, there is a reference in that piece to the 78ers, our number being 78, which is the original Mardi Gras, which um, was a horrible affair where the police beat the shit out of the um, those mm. who were marching in, in 1978. And if you want to go one stretch further, the number works with 78, the 78ers. And the journo who wrote the feature on the other Spiro, his name's Matthew Wade. Huh. <laughs> so so you, you've got, we've got huh. two different Spiro Econopolises who, who, who have got 78 and wicketkeeping uh, and stuff wicket going on. Link. Okay. Different generations, right. but... I thought I'd do that on the way out. And yeah, the original Spiro. I love the idea that cricket was his path to professional football. You've already said the others who've done so. We were talking about mm. Andy Gorham only six months ago, the great Rangers keeper who played um, list day cricket for Scotland, mm. albeit as an all-rounder rather than a um, wicketkeeper. I wonder how he yep. would have gone had Andy Gorham became a wicketkeeper, given yeah. what a brilliant footballer he was and had that career that went all the way through the 90s with Rangers in Scotland and you know mm. reflexes, similar skill set. But anyway, just a great yarn. So thank you, Peter, for uh, sending it our way into our uh, Nerd Pledge CSI guys for helping me on my way with it too. Last number of this episode, Jeff, Mike Dunn. That's the kind of name you can set your watch to, like you swam at the Olympics in 1964. Mm-hmm. And won a medal for Australia. Mike Dunn, 238, 2.38, I should specify. Yep. Uh, there is no clue on this one, which means it looks like a free swing. Have fun with it. Yeah, it's $2.38. And, uh, and I know from a bit of correspondence with Mike Dunn over the years, I'm very confident he's got a New Zealand uh, fondness, New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand soft spot. I don't think lives in New Zealand anymore, but uh, but came, comes from that part of the world originally. I think, which means that I think this might be the same answer as a number from Hamish Stairs, the man whose name is a sentence, who's had a few nerd pledges come through in his time, which which would be the 238 runs made in an innings by Big Daddy Kane, uh, Kane Williamson, when oh, yeah. he made he made the 238 against Pakistan that won. Mm. New Zealand a test match that got them into the World Test Championship final when Australia botched it with their slow over rate, the first WTC that New Zealand went on to win. I remember watching a lot of that. That was when I was in hotel quarantine, Jeff, uh, in Perth, and uh, that was the test series that was on, and therefore that was the cricket we were watching. So, yes, yeah, whatever there was 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 whatever you could get, and Australia managed the fraction of a point deduction or whatever it was that ended up seeing them bump down to, to third spot. 
It was a good observation of, of talking on The Daily Show about chatting with Alex Malcolm in the press box during the Perth test. Good observation from him about the slow overrate thing as well, which was simply that all the time in cricket, we're always talking about uh, the bowling side wanting to get what they can out of the pitch in the first session or, you know, there might be a little bit in it early is the kind of thing that you hear time and time again, that there'd be a bit more moisture, a bit more freshness. On a, on a batting wicket, you want to make the most of the early overs, right? Yeah. And he posed the question, which is a very good question, why would you not be going to every effort to get as many overs as possible in before lunch? Like, mm. Why would you not be trying to bowl every possible delivery and give yourself some time to waste late in the day when you're... You know, the, the, all the life's gone out of the pitch, and maybe the batting side's having a more comfortable time of it. Like, why do you want to be bowling more overs at them in the third session than you are in the first? And playing catch up, which is never good for the energy. So, when you've got a spinner on trying to get through overs in 90 seconds to make up your over rate, and you're knackered as mm. it is, it gives your fast bowler less time to rest down the other end when presumably they're in rotation yep. with the spinner. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's It's like just bad resource allocation I suppose like whereas mm. if you get 30 overs or even more than 30 overs in before lunch and really push it yeah it builds flexibility and puts you under less pressure later I don't know why I mean I do know why because it's like that thing you probably know that you've explained it better than I have in the past if you're given a certain amount of time if you're given a four-hour deadline you will take four hours to write the article if you're mm. given a 40-minute deadline you'll write the article in 40 minutes and there'll be negligible difference between the two pieces of writing right yeah, I suppose so. The the job expands to fill the time available. Yeah, um, but given that you have to do the full day's bowling anyway, uh, the, the the point of not making the most of potentially better bowling conditions seems a, a very useful one. Anyway, overrates, things that we like to talk about that no one else mm. wants to hear about. Um, Kane Williamson is now up to 29 test hundreds, so he's almost, there's, there's that Bradman 2900s thing is something that, sort of lingers in the memory for a lot of people I think and so yep. then going going into the 30s is is that's what the, the modern greats started to do because nobody had more than Bradman's 29 back in the day. Yeah I feel like when Steve Waugh reached 29 that was the same day he brought up 10,000 test runs that famous day at Sydney in, in 2003 I was corresponding with a listener of ours today Christy who was uh, who was at our live show in, in Melbourne and said that she was there at Sydney in 2003 I'm like well so was I like that's a real thing but that was Steve Waugh. Being his 29th made it even more special again because it pulled level with, with Bradman and, you know, we all know what happens after that. Yeah. So 400s this year, Kane Williamson. Uh, did that in five innings as well, which is kind of ridiculous. So the one that he made in Bangladesh the other week was his third in consecutive innings, even though the previous innings, two innings were in March. So he went two in March and then one at the, the next time of asking in December. But anyway, I've, I have talked about that 238 before, so I just wondered uh, who else made a, a 238 and what would you know? Walter Reginald Hammond. Yeah. Wally Hammond made a 238 not out, Adam, mm. at Kensington Oval on January the 8th, 1926 Ooh. for the Touring MCC Ooh, on the go. tour. On the very tour uh, oh, where wow. things started to go wrong for a young Wally Hammond. They just got there as well, so this is early in the tour. So the first fixture is January 1 
against the Barbados Colts team. Then they play a game against a full Barbados team. And then by the 8th of January, they're playing a game against a full West Indies team. So they, they just ramp up and ramp up. They're all in Barbados. They're all at the same ground at Kensington Oval. And then after the West Indies game, which is not a test, it's not designated as a test match, but it's, a, it's against a West Indies representative team, they go back to playing another full Barbados team. So they, they play Barbados twice either side of this non-test match. And in the non-test match, England make this, well, the MCC make this huge score of 597 declared, eight wickets down, um, and 238 not out is Wally Hammond's contribution to that. Pretty good team. Percy Holmes is in that team. Roy Kilner, Lionel Tennyson. They nearly win that match. They probably should have won that match. So they bowl out West Indies team for 147 and then have them 21 for six when they run out of time at the end of the fourth day, but it's only a four-day game. So Wally is not required to bowl much, bowls a few overs, doesn't take a wicket, does take five catches across the two innings. And it just made me wonder, OK, he's a, he's a, he's a lad of 22, and if you put this in context here, the, the, the second Barbados game... He doesn't make many in that game. He doesn't make many in the first Barbados game. The first Barbados game, they get smashed by an innings. The second Barbados game, they barely hold on for a draw. This is the MCC team. So they get dominated by Barbados, even though they dominate the game against the West Indies side. And even the Barbados-Colts game, Wally Hammond's out for one, and they draw it in a couple of days. They can't even beat the Colts team. So if you look across his tour, so he leads the tour averages with 48, but a lot of that rides on the red ink from the 238 not out. The rest of the tour, so across the whole tour, 732 runs, but that's in 18 innings. So he makes like a third of his tour runs in this one innings. And his only other 100 comes against British Guiana, which is probably not a huge fixture at the time. And it just made me think, Adam, he's, yeah. this, this feels like the one, right? It's the, it's the big game. He's made the big double. He heads out celebrating, lets loose makes a bad decision or a series of bad decisions and surely this is the innings that contracts syphilis for Wally Hammond. I mean, it would suggest uh, so. I mean, I, I, know, I know you haven't kind of gone through the, uh, the deterioration in his, in his st- series numbers, but hmm. purely down to what you're describing there about so much of the average being informed by this one big hit. Uh, well, yeah, maybe this was the one big hit uh, and uh, which cost him the 2026 season when his cock nearly fell off. Um, this is um, this deserves a book to be written about it. Um, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the, the Bradman's War, uh, which did really well. That was a book mm-hmm. that was released a, well, a long time ago. Now, maybe it should be Wally's trip to Barbados. His own Wally's as, as Donald Trump, as Donald Trump, as we talked about earlier, described. Was it described the um, AIDS pandemic as his personal Vietnam? Was that was what he? Uh, was, that's was true. It, yes, uh, that is, I, think, this, I think this, that's this what was he Wally said. Hammond's um, personal war. Um, mm. uh, Okay, interesting. Uh, uh, well, you know, it just it just it just made me think. It just made me wonder, and and also, you know, I, we make a lot of fun of Wally Hammond, but I, I did have a, a pang of understanding where I thought, you know, whoops amongst us, a twenty two year old on your first joint overseas, contracting some sort of venereal disease, like there, but for the grace of God, for most of the rest of us in this world, I would have thought. I, I should um, correct the record by saying, by the way, I just Googled it then. Trump said that contracting STDs when he was single, as was his, his personal Vietnam, he said it to Howard right. Stern, which, um, you know, it all lines up, doesn't it? It's, it's a confusing line in terms of what, you know, trying to actually divine what that actually means. Um, mm. But 
but yes, it was a it was a, it was a different time back then, and uh, various precautionary items were far less readily available, particularly for young and gormless cricketing schoolboys just about being sent off to the other side of the world full of excitement and vim and, and, and the desire to embrace life to the fullest. So anyway, it's just a, just, just a little bell that was rung. Is that, was, that a, was that a significant innings in the life of Wally Hammond in a way that went beyond the numbers? Well, thank you, Mike Dunn, for helping us um, get to the bottom of all of this. That, that, that's a worthwhile research piece there, Jeff. Nicely done by you. That's the end of the numbers for today. As you said earlier, patreon.com forward slash the final word. We're going to be continuing to make so many episodes of story time throughout the course of 2024. If you wish to be part of that as a pledger, all you do is jump on that Patreon page, pop in your number. You don't have to give a clue. Indeed, often it's better when you don't give a clue because that means we can have a bit of a free swing and you get two bites of the cherry. You come back on the revisit shows and, and so on. And it also gets you access to the Discord channel, the the nicest place on the internet, I would argue, in the entire cricketing world. There is so much work going on behind the scenes at the moment for the the Vietnam, the Edinburgh uh, half marathon and marathon. (laughs) Fuck me. Our Vietnam. No, uh, the uh, the Edinburgh marathon and half marathon in late May, late late May bank holiday of 2024. Don't miss out on that. This is going to be really good. I know that right now when you're listening, you've probably had an indulgent week Christmas, Boxing Day, staying up late if you're in the UK and, and you might be um, might be in the market to run something in Scotland in, in May. Well, no better time than to get the running shoes out than January. And instead of joining a gym and taking up a membership that will sit there gathering dust within three or four weeks, instead... Oh, we'll keep charging on your credit card periodically forever. for the next 14 for, years for, because forever, you can never right. resign. Instead, just grab yourself some running shoes, find a, a way you can train up and get ready. And it doesn't take that long to prepare for a half marathon. Like it can be overplayed a little bit, whisper it. If you've got a base level of fitness, you can probably do it straight away. If you don't, a couple of months tops. If you don't... Mm. Yeah, and the 10K is available as well. We've got a few people running the 10K who have never done running before. That is very, very achievable in a couple of months. There's the couch to 5K, and that's 30 days, I think, from memory, Jeff. If you can do that 30-day couch to 5K, you can do then the, the extra 5K. Adrenaline will get you through comfortably. That's on a Saturday morning. We'll have a lovely time watching you. We will probably watch some cricket on Saturday afternoon. We will run on Sunday. We will go out on Sunday night. It will be brilliant. There's a fundraiser coming up in January. Don't miss this opportunity to be part of something wonderful for the Lord's Taverners uh, who do such wonderful work in our cricketing community now for over seven decades. We're trying to raise 30 grand for them. It would be a mighty achievement, but I I believe we can do it. Got to have big goals if you want to kick big goals. I don't know. I don't, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out well, of words. I'm done. This well, is this is. Who yeah. had big goals? Who had big goals? See my superannuation forty years ago. They had big goals. Yep. Big returns. Yep. Big. Mm-hmm. Yep. Some. I sh- was just expecting <laughs> you to do a Hawthorne link somehow or other. But there it is. It is the end of year. It's a historic episode. An episode where we spoke about the sport of rugby league, and it is now the end of 2024. But there'll be the the New Year's Eve episode yes. where we do our bests and worsts, as is now traditional on the final word. Uh, and then we launch into a new year with all of you, hopefully by our sides. Uh, lots of love. Thanks for being with us this year, and we'll see you soon. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about